right, so multiple re- reboots and restarts later. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off any plan for the next three months by using the code RubyRogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to BraintreePayments.com slash RubyRogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 212 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. Avdi Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. Coraline Ada Emke. Hi from Chicago. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. Very quick reminder, if you haven't signed up yet, you can get tickets for Ruby Remote Conf. It's in a couple of weeks. It's going to be online. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to get a hotel room. We have a whole bunch of awesome people speaking. So go check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. And we also have two special guests this week. We have Richard Feldman. Good morning. And Evan, I forgot how to say his name. Chapliki. Chapliki. Hello. Do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves? Sure. I am the designer of Elm Programming Language. So I'm working on that uh, full-time at Prezi. I'm a programmer at No Red Inc. We make grammar and writing software for English teachers, and I am a heavy Elm user, uh, including recently at No Red Inc. Wait a minute. So we're not talking about the Unix command line mail reader today? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so it was act- it was an accident that I overloaded, but it means that if I ever make a successor to Elm, I have a name for it. Pine. We're all set. <laughs> <laughs> nice. True. So Evan, what is Elm? So it's a language for front-end programming. So when you want to do something in browser, the idea is that it's a nicer way to do this kind of front-end programming. Nicer way than JavaScript? Uh, Yeah. So we're taking a functional approach to try to sort of 
rule out a lot of the common errors. So one way to say it is like we're trying to pick the right default so that when you start making an application, things sort of go right in a way where you look back and you're like, whoa, like how come everything's working out? Uh, um, in a way that things tend to sometimes not when you're just starting out with JavaScript. So I guess I have to ask then, what is it about Elm that makes it better than JavaScript? Well, from my perspective, uh, one of the biggest things is that I just stop getting runtime exceptions. So I, I have this side project called DreamWriter, uh, which is open source, and I initially wrote it in CoffeeScript, and uh, I, after several iterations, I had this design that I really liked, but a code base that was kind of unmaintainable, and I decided to rewrite it in Elm, and I was totally floored by the fact that yeah, the compiler is just so good at finding bugs ahead of time that I just never got any of my own code throwing a runtime exception. And that's sort of held true through multiple refactors and things like that. And it really changes a lot about programming when you don't have to worry about things crashing at runtime anymore. Yeah, I think I'm going to challenge kind of the paradigm a little bit and just point out, so is it the transpilation process into JavaScript? Or is there something else about Elm that makes it so that you don't have those errors? Yeah, so the root design that makes that possible is a feature in Elm. So we're, we'll compile down to JavaScript, and the code we generate will be free of these runtime errors. And the way we do that is we have a, a type system in Elm where we can actually infer all the types of everything in your program. So we can get sort of like a contract on any particular function and say, I expect a string, and I'm going to give you out a, a, a user object. And we can guarantee that for every use of that function, that contract is respected. Um, and so that's something that the compiler is able to figure out. Okay, so so type safety and part of the transpilation. Um, I think what you said, though, was that you get a lot of this out of it being a functional uh, approach. So what well, about the functional approach gives you this kind of stability? That's, that's part of it as well. So one thing we also do is we rule out null pointer exceptions. So there's no such thing as null. When you want to model a thing that may be there or may be not there, um, we have a special value that makes that explicit. So you'll never be in a situation where you're coding defensively, like, will they give me a null, will they not? Like, you, you just know based on the contract of the function, the type of the function, whether or not that'll happen. And so in practice, that's like a, uh, it's a whole class of errors that can happen at runtime that you just don't have to worry about in Elm. And it turns out that class is almost all of them. <laughs> it's, it's, tech, it's technically possible. Like, I mean, you can still get stack overflows and things like that. But in practice, I really still have yet to encounter it either on my side project or at Noritic, which we're, where we're now using Elm code. So you describe Elm as functional reactive programming. And we've talked a little bit about the functional. Can you talk about the reactive part? Yeah. So this is sort of going back to the sort of like the history of Elm. Uh, initially, it was just about taking a functional approach to graphics, like how could we do HTML in a more functional way? And at some point I realized like it didn't move. I had a picture of Yogi Bear and a picture of like a, a pentagon and I was like, oh, well, this is cool, but I want the pentagon to spin and I want Yogi Bear to like dance around. Um, and so reactivity came in as a way to bring in sort of event-driven uh, interactions and keep the sort of functional foundation. So keeping the sort of key ideas that make it so Richard doesn't get any runtime errors, but also being able to interact with the world in a nice way. You mentioned the functional principles inside it. Which ones are those? Uh, we talked about, you talked about type safety and that you don't allow nulls. Is it immutability? Is it no side effects? Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So both of those are parts of what 
like functional means in Elm. Like I, I, it's a contested term, but sort of it comes down to some key features. One of them is immutability. So that's one where I guess the key high level thing that comes from that is if you add new code, it can never break old code. And that's sort of a, as you're growing a code base, that becomes an extremely important feature of a language, right? Some guy on your team who's writing something crazy can't secretly mess you up. So immutability is a big role. Another one that's kind of subtle is this idea of union types, a way to model data in a very precise way. So we're able to make little state machines and deal with sort of different shapes of data in a really pleasant way that is, it seems subtle, it seems like a small feature, but it has a really big impact on how it feels to write a larger application. I think the the lack of side effects, to be clear, Elm is 100% immutable and 0% side effects. And so effects are sort of managed uh, in a first class way. And what that means is that any given function is just totally safe to work with. Um, you never have to worry about it doing something like Evan said to some other part of your code base. And this has some really interesting implications when you're looking at code where you can just look at something and when you're trying to debug and figure out you know, who's the culprit, there, I have this bug, something didn't work the way that I expected it to, who's responsible? It lets you really quickly narrow that down because you're saying, oh, well, what can this function possibly impact? Could this function have possibly caused this bug? And you can very quickly say either yes or no based on just looking at its arguments and what's in scope. If it didn't get past you know, a particular value, if it didn't return a particular value, then you know, it just can't possibly have affected that path. What exactly do you mean by side effects? What qualifies as one? The broad category is doing stuff, right? So if you're printing something out to console or talking to a server or modifying a database, anything that you can observe as an outsider is a side effect. So I like to make this distinction between effects and side effects. So when I call a function, I know that it's going to give me back certain values. But if that function had a side effect, it may also write something to a database. And as your functions gets more and more complex, if you have these back doors to have these effects, it becomes trickier and trickier to know who actually did do that to the database. So we separate out this concept of effects so you can explicitly talk about here's a particular like task that I want to do. I want to go talk to the database, and that we can talk about sort of as data. And so we can separate out running a function from having some effect on the world. The analogy I like is with uh, JavaScript promises, and Elm tasks are a little bit like promises, but kind of more awesome in several ways. But imagine if you had in JavaScript, so currently in JavaScript, you can have some functions that return a promise, and that's one way that you can have them do something. But imagine if the only way to do things were functions that return a promise and that promise that got returned was sort of the only way that that function could possibly have any effect on the world. So either the function would return a promise, in which case that promise would eventually get run, or the function would not return a promise, in which case you had a guarantee that that function was not affecting the outside world in any way. In other words, you could call that function passing the same arguments, and no matter how many times you called it, passing the same arguments, you would always, 100% of the time, get exactly the same return value, and it would do nothing else. It would not affect the outside world in any way. And it doesn't so dig around in the outside world to find out what to return. Exactly, yeah. It just, it just looks at its arguments and at the, you know, the enclosing scope, and that's it. And in 
Elm, that's how everything is. And it, it's really interesting how, you know, at first it's kind of unfamiliar because you're used to doing things in a different way. And, you know, you have to sort of adjust to that. It takes a second to, you know, become comfortable in doing things in that style. But then once you do, you're like, man, all of these problems I used to have are just gone. It's really great. <laughs> Was the sub-question there, though, if you can't look at the world from the function, like, how do you look at the world? Is it, Was that kind of the subtext? That's there? what I was going to ask, so yeah. go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> That's where sort of reactivity comes into it. So sort of the goal of Elm is we have this core functional language that has a lot of nice properties. And essentially the goal is how can we write as much as possible of our code in that way and then connect it up into the world in a way that doesn't ruin all of those nice properties. And so that's where reactivity comes in. So when you want information from the world, that's going to be coming into your program as through what Elm calls signals, these sort of reactive values where events are streaming in and you can you react to them as they come in. So essentially you structure your program such that you're reacting to all these events, but the actual code that is responding to these events is written in this functional way. Does that make sense? Let me see if I can restate it a little bit because I was kind of lost on the, okay, so we don't have side effects. And then it's like, okay, so how do you talk to anything? And right. it seems so, that so I think framing it as like, we don't have side effects is not how I want to do it. I know a lot of functional languages have say it this way, uh-huh. but it's like, we have effects. We, we have managed effects. So it's something that's really important. Interacting with the world is the thing that matters. Um, and so the goal is how can we do that in a way that's nice and still keep a lot of the nice properties of this functional core language. So I'm, I'm kind of getting the feeling that, you know, if you, I don't know, maybe I don't understand it well enough to even restate it, but it seems like part of it is that, you know, if you make the same request or, you know, you execute the same function with the same arguments, you know, you can have the same side effect and it just kind of works, you know, with telling the outside world, save this or, you know, update these values if you call that you know, over and over and over again, you're just going to have the same value in there. And it seems like some of the data comes back through these signals. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to map it out in my head. From my perspective, I actually didn't understand signals like at all when I came into Elm. So Evan's given a number of talks about uh, sort of the, the conceptual ideas behind Elm, which are really cool, but sort of very advanced. I'm pretty dumb. I just make stuff and I'm just a happy, you know, user of Elm. Definitely not a designer type. So I've used a number of different front-end frameworks and tools over the years. And sort of the the best ones that I've come across are React and Flux. Um, So this is React only came out last year. And, you know, Flux was even more recent than that. And basically the, the paradigm between the two is you have this sort of unidirectional data flow where there's a user input of some sort. And that triggers uh, this action, and then the action sort of flows through and then causes you to re-render your whole application based on, you know, what changed. And then that, in turn, sets up a new set of, you know, ways to react to user inputs. And so that's what we use at work at No Red Inc. for most of our code base. And that's what we've been kind of moving towards because it's been a really positive experience. What's interesting about Elm is that it basically... It's as if you took those concepts, which are currently just JavaScript frameworks and and sort of becoming, at least in my experience, best practices, and it's as if you built a whole language around them, where instead of these just being a framework that's just added on, everything is built with this in mind. So instead of having a library that creates this unidirectional data flow of user inputs getting translated into these abstract actions and then reacting to that and re-rendering, you have the whole language does it that way. So you have signals are just sort of a first class way to say, this is the only way to deal with user inputs. 
Does that make a little more sense? Yeah, kind of. I, th- I think I just need to have somebody draw a picture, and I don't know that we can do that over an audio podcast. <laughs> oh, I totally wish I could draw a picture. Is it like there's some signals that are going to come in, and that's like the incoming data, like the user clicked or something like that. They clicked in this spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that goes through all of your code, and your code decides how to react to that signal, which might be, oh, now we're going to be this color, or it might be, go hit the server at this location and find out what it says. And when that comes back from the server, that itself becomes a signal that then loops around and goes back into your code from the top? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that this is one of those things where it sounds more complicated than it is. So I actually specifically had this <laughs> come up recently. So I, I had our first Elm pull request into our code base to, to rewrite a big complicated piece of our application. So uh, I wanted to walk through it with one of my coworkers who's actually a junior developer, like came out of dev bootcamp and like, you know, is, is definitely not like a big comp sci expert. And so I was walking him through it and basically just kind of explaining what the code did. And after about an hour and a half, I mean, he was up to speed and he was like, wow, that was easy. And I think it's one of those things where it's, it sounds intimidating because it's different from what you're used to. But once you actually sit down and look at the code and just kind of play with it a little bit, it's actually not that far off from sort of where JavaScript's headed right now. It's just doing things in a slightly different way. So I, I would definitely recommend that people sort of uh, who are interested in Elm take the path that I did, which is just sit down and play with it. It turns out that there are sort of a lot of very simple analogs just from, you know, it's, it's in a lot of cases just a translation step where you're like, okay, normally I would do this imperative click handler where I say I'd get my elements and I say dot add event listener, and then in Elm instead, you know, or, or even in React, you say, you know, instead you're declaratively saying, here's the element that I want to end up on the screen. I'm going to have an on-click field there, and then that's going to specify some code that gets run. In Elm, it's, again, the same kind of thing, except just even slightly different, where you have the on-click handler, and instead of writing some imperative callback that happens when the user clicks, instead you just describe how you want that value to get sent through the signal system. And it's, you know, the code looks pretty similar in all three cases. It's just you sort of learn the Elm way of doing it. And then you're like, oh, okay, I got it. And then that's how you do your, you know, click handlers from then on. Yeah. And I think that the, like, the core language design choices around immutability, and it sounds kind of crazy, but what, yeah, like when you actually look at the code, it's not that weird. You just have these extra sort of language level guardrails that are going to keep you from going astray in a way that you may you may not even realize that you do every day right so i i find that there's sort of lessons that elm taught me as i used it more just by virtue of sort of having some some rules and so now i try to use that whenever i'm writing javascript or python or whatever so so there's totally true i found the same thing yeah (laughs) <laughs> there's sort of these so so I think that's how I would characterize it it's like you're you're just writing normal code but there's just this extra push towards like hey are you sure you want to use a mutable reference here like is that really a good idea and once you sort of get into the spirit of how to structure your code in that way it's something you can do in javascript or whatever but having the language like guide you to that is shockingly helpful even when you know that's what you want to do <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, 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 I have to, to say that that picture that you put up there really helped that you know that link that you added so we'll put that in the show notes i think it'll give people a little more context mm. when i try to explain to people the uh, mental shift for reactivity um the example i usually use is a spreadsheet program like excel do you think that's a, a helpful comparison i know that a lot of reactive folks use that one i personally never have <laughs> why is that 
I don't know if that sort of captures the thing I was trying to solve with Elm, right? So my real goal was I want to do front-end stuff in a functional way. And reactivity is really sort of on the borders of all these benefits, where it's how you feed in events, but the primary benefits are coming sort of in the, the core logic, which isn't doing stuff in a super reactive way. From my perspective, it's kind of, I don't think of it in terms of Excel. I think of it more in terms of solving a problem that the alternatives have. So this is kind of where React itself came from, was just that sort of the old way of, or I guess in a lot of cases the current way, but sort of the the status quo was sort of two-way data binding was the best way to get things done. And you would have this thing would update this thing, which would update this other thing, which would update this third thing. And as your application grew and grew, you would get these cascading updates that were, A, in a lot of cases, really inefficient because they were mutating DOM nodes left and right. And that's sort of the slowest part of your rendering pipeline, generally speaking. But B, it was something where it was getting really difficult to tell all of the sort of consequences of one user input. And that was definitely what I ran into with DreamWriter that was, you know, I... (laughs) I, I had this horrible experience where I built this really cool thing that I was using all the time and I broke paste. Like you couldn't paste things, which for a novel editing program is kind of a problem. But I really liked the user experience that I built up around it. And so other than paste not working, it was still very pleasant. But I went to fix that and I was like, okay, I'm just going to fix this problem. But then in the course of fixing it, I introduced other bugs because all of the different consequences of paste that needed to trigger all of these different updates, that the code had just gotten so complex and so many things were intertwined with so many other things. I I found that I couldn't actually fix paste without breaking something else. And just, you know, re-architecting in the sort of React and Flux way solves that problem in the sense that you no longer have cascading updates, but rather you say, okay, we got this one input, I'm going to change the state of the world in this particular way, and then given that new state of the world, we're going to re-render everything. And that sort of is its own reward. That's sort of a, a virtue in and of itself. What Elm does is it makes that sort of the focus and says, okay, let's take it as a given that that's the right way to do things, which to my mind, in my experience, it is. And given that, how can we make that the nicest possible experience? And that's what's really great is that when I compare using React and Flux on their own in JavaScript and CoffeeScript, with doing the same sort of paradigm in Elm. In Elm, it's just way nicer because everything is sort of built around that instead of it being added on to a language that's not really designed for it. So to get back to like the how to think about reactivity, thinking about the two-way data binding versus one-way is sort of a key. And another way to put it might be when you have the ability to do like a two-way interaction, essentially you're, you're sort of coupling a bunch of pieces of your program, like the current state of this component depends on what's happening in this other component, depends on what's happening in this other component. And no one really is in charge. You just have to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, and when you turn this into a one-way thing, you're able to derive a lot more things. So rather than trying to coordinate between 10 different pieces that are all sort of in different states, you have a sort of more central view of the world, and then you derive any information you need from that. And so as long as that derivation is right, it's always going to be right. Whereas if you add something to one of your components in this world where everything is tightly coupled, maybe that means something else has to change in another component to account for that, and then something has to change in another component to account for that. So it's really a way to cut this coupling. I mean, so I feel like the Excel spreadsheet is a little weird in that it doesn't, I don't feel like it gets at the essence of what reactivity is giving us in Elm, at least. So for listeners who haven't heard this analogy, 
the idea is when you're using Excel, uh, you can update uh, a cell, and if you have any formulas, those will just automatically recompute, right? So you've set up the system where things will flow through the Excel spreadsheet in a reactive, responsive way. But what's tricky there is in Excel, you, again, don't really have any structure, right? You can put these formulas anywhere and do sort of crazily complex things. And the point of reactivity in Elm is how can we get that craziness down to a minimum and sort of try to do as much of our application in a really simple, functional way. In terms of uh, syntax and semantics, uh, Elm really seems inspired by Haskell. Is that fair? Syntactically, I'd say that that was an inspiration. So I, I like to say that Elm comes out of the ML family of languages. So there's sort of a tradition that goes back to, I want to say the 70s of languages that have this kind of type inference. And so these are languages like standard ML and OCaml and Haskell sort of a recent iteration that's captured sort of some fraction of, of mindshare. But I think in terms of semantics, we actually share a lot more with stuff like OCaml and standard ML where, to be more specific, Elm is strict. Like, I personally think laziness is not a good default <laughs> for most cases. So well, because we're in a reactive setting, imagine if we were, whenever a second passed, we would increment a little counter. But we only looked at that counter every 10 minutes. So in a lazy version of this, instead of actually incrementing the number, we just say, oh, I'll increment this number later. And we keep saying, oh, yeah, I'll do this, in a, I'll do this later, I'll do this later. And over 10 minutes, you can build up a really large computation that when you finally observe it, you have to do it all at once. And so that just seems like that's a simple example, but you can imagine that for more complicated scenarios. So it just seemed like a bad default for a reactive setting. By strict versus lazy, what you mean is in Haskell, Haskell is lazy by default, which has the consequence that whenever an expression in Haskell is encountered, it isn't evaluated right away. It's not until the output of that expression is actually used that the code is evaluated right. or executed. It's interesting because, I mean, syntactically they're similar, but, I mean, I, I know a little bit of Haskell and a lot of Elm, and I don't think they're very similar as languages, honestly, beyond the syntax. I, so, like, there's the syntax. Okay, so it's, it's more ML, more yeah. just part of the ML family. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I guess the question I was leading up to with that is is really just what went into that the decision to base your language on the ML family as opposed to like you know the Lisp family or something like that. So my sort of personal progression through languages sort of got me to a place where I sort of really fell in love with that kind of language. So I started out doing Java, and the first thing I wanted to do was like, okay, let's make a game. You know, so it's like static, private, public, whatever, like, you know, you get past that and you're like, okay, how can I make a command line game? How can I make a, a 2D game? How can I make a 3D game? And so I eventually got into C++ to do OpenGL stuff. And when I got to college, the first introduction to functional programming I had was with Scheme, so with a Lisp. And it sort of just like blew my mind where I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. And then the next year I learned standard ML, just sort of in not an ideal way, like I was taking compilers class and the professor was just like, it's in standard ML. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to learn that now. And sort of that again blew my mind where I was like, holy crap, like this whole kind of debugging experience, this whole refactoring experience is so much improved in this world that it sort of became like, oh man, like I really love this approach. And so my feeling when I was thinking about making Elm was sort of, 
I was working on a project that was JavaScript, CSS, HTML, and I was sort of running into these problems where I was like, man, this really doesn't need to be a problem anymore, you know? I'm working at a language that's 20 years old and I still can't reuse, like, pieces of my UI. Um, so I just felt like there were a lot of lessons from functional languages, particularly typed ones, to bring to front-end programming that, for some reason, a lot of folks in the functional community haven't been able to sort of focus on, like, hey, I have a real problem that I want to solve, right? So there is this sort of like, there are academically interesting parts, but for me, the thing that's really interesting is, hey, refactoring's nicer. I'm able to accomplish my goals in a way that like feels more joyful. I don't know how to quantify that, but that's sort of where, where this is coming from. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to quantify it either, but it's really been my experience. I remember like the first time when I actually, I sort of, you know, crossed the threshold from, like reading documentation to actually, you know, being able to build stuff in Elm. And I just spent like basically the rest of the day programming in it. And it was just, I just had this huge goofy grin on my face. Like that I don't think I've had since I was like nine years old writing visual basic being like, I can make UIs. It's just, it's this incredible experience. I mean, I talking about backgrounds, I started out with basic and then went to C and then to uh, Java and I actually switched from Java over to, I, I for a long time, um, was a professional Java developer and then switched to dynamic languages because I was just, I was so sick of all the verbosity and just being like, this thing is an int and this thing is a string and this, you know, just, just over and over. And it's, it just felt like all of this ceremony that was just not worth it. And so switching to a language where I could just be concise and just be like, I want to do these things. And it was so much nicer. And I didn't really think about going back until I tried Elm and basically found that, oh, there's actually something even better than that, which is that you can get your conciseness because Elm has total type inference. So you don't have to write out any type annotations that you don't want to. You don't have to be like, this is an int, this is a string. You can just write your code. But at the same time, the compiler then tells you if you've got a problem, which is really cool because it, that's what makes refactoring so cheap is like I would have this experience where I'd be like, okay, I wrote all this code. I just realized that I have a better design in mind and I'd change it. And then the compiler would be like, here are all the places that you broke stuff. Like you broke something here, you broke something here. I'm like, oh, good point. I forgot about that. And I'd go through, fix that, fix that, fix that. And then when it was done, I would bring it back up and everything would just work with no regressions. And that just was mind blowing to me. I've just never had that experience anywhere else before where it just, I did a huge refactor and everything just still worked as soon as I got through all the compiler errors. And I still have not really had that experience anywhere else. And I certainly did not have that experience in Java. I mean, Java, you get null pointer exception. You get all sorts of, you know, certainly there's no shortage of runtime exceptions you could get there. And just having that experience, it's, I'm like, man, I want this, you know, all the time. <laughs> and it's fantastic. So you talked about refactoring, and I don't like refactoring without tests. What's the testing framework for Elm look like? Yeah, so it's called Elm Test. Basically, uh, it's it's not included with the standard platform because it relies on Node to execute the tests. So obviously, like the Elm compiler, its job is to generate JavaScript. But you know, if you want to run tests from the command line, then you need some sort of way to execute JavaScript from the command line. That's where Node comes in. So you actually get Elm Test with npm install Elm test. Basically, uh, it's pretty standard uh, testing framework. There is a really cool uh, library for it called Elm Check if you're into property-based testing, which does shrinking, among other things. I don't know 
how many listeners are into property-based testing, but I totally am. <laughs> so I could probably go on about that for a while, but I, that might be a less of a useful digression. But at any rate, yeah, that's the... Well, let's talk about that really, really briefly. We have talked about that a few times on this show. Of course, uh, Jessica is a, is a big fan of property-based testing and constantly trying to get us to use more of it, uh, nice. which I appreciate. Go Jess. The thing that, that I always like to hear examples of are sort of really concrete examples of property-based testing that, that have to do with, like, real-world domain problems, not just like, you know, I, I tried all possible inputs to this algorithm, you know, this mathematical alg- algorithm, and I found an, an error. So I think you can probably say more about property-based testing stuff. Yeah, so the, I mean, the basic idea is that you basically... So the example that I like to give is instead of writing a test with some canned data, you write the test, and then you say, okay, instead of calling this function or whatever it is that I'm testing, passing in this you know fixed string or this fixed object, I'm going to write a generator that's going to generate a bunch of different strings or a bunch of different objects with particular characteristics, and then run the test a bunch of different times with those randomly generated inputs. And then the idea is that instead of just getting one case covered, you get a bunch of different cases. And yeah. in particular, this is important for edge cases like what happens if you pass in the empty list? What happens if you pass in empty string? What happens if you pass in a negative number? What happens if you pass in zero? So you can think of it as like, it's a way to write tests that you didn't think of, right? Like, yes, you're, that's like, a great way to put it. Like, so if, when I run across cases that I, I didn't think of, usually it's because a user went through a sequence or a user and other inputs to the system went through a sequence of event, events that I never envisioned. So it's it's often it's less about, you know, oh, I never expected that method to receive a zero. It's more about I never expected that sequence of keystrokes to happen, you know, or someone to log out and then hit that button. Is that something that you're able to address with this kind of testing? I think that usually comes down more to uh, integration tests versus unit tests. To address that directly, I think it is. I don't know if people have started doing this kind of stuff yet in Elm, but essentially most of your application logic is going to be just a function where you take in some arguments and you give out some result. That's true. And so that means the ability to test that is really simple. So I'll take a a roundabout way back to your initial question. So we have this tool called Elm Reactor, which gives you access to like a time-traveling debugger. And the idea is, when you know the inputs to your program, you're able to reproduce the whole execution of the program. So as it is, normally that's fed into your program with signals, but you could feed that in with a list of actions. So in that you could generate a list of do this, do that, do this, do the other, and see what happens to in your code, um, you could use a kind of property-based testing to do this kind of stuff. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I guess a, a simpler but less specific way to answer the question is th- there's a, a lot less of a difference between user taking a series of different actions and, you know, you're, it, having a series of different inputs in Elm and just calling functions with, you know, a different set of arguments. Those are pretty much the same thing for most of your Elm code. Avdi mentioned, like, combinations of series of keystrokes and clicks that we didn't expect, right? Mm-hmm. And in Elm, those are represented by signals. So you mm-hmm. could totally have a generator generate random sequences of signals and run them through your code. Exactly, then, yeah. Yeah, make sure that the state that it ends up in is a valid state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally true. 
Yeah, I mean, in practice, for me, I guess what I mentioned about integration versus unit testing is just in a lot of cases, if you specifically get, I've seen that if users do this, followed by this, followed by this, followed by this, in some cases, it's less about what's, you know, sort of your business logic and more about sort of peripheral things like maybe even what browser they're using, if their, you know, their internet connection is choppy, if there's latency, things like that. Uh, so in a lot of cases, it's not so much that the code change needs to be, I need to fix my logic, but rather that I need to change my code to be more resilient to things outside of my code base breaking. And in those cases, obviously, that's where you reach for an integration test rather than a unit test. But property-based testing is definitely you know something that's useful for unit testing. You mentioned so, the time-traveling debugger in passing. Can you talk about that some more? Sure. So this was sort of a, a happy accident from my perspective. One of my coworkers at Prezi, he saw Hacker News comment like, oh, where's the debugger? Like, I can't use it till we have a debugger. And he sort of took that as a challenge, not just to make a debugger that we'd seen before in any other language, but how can we use the sort of design of Elm to make something really crazy? And so he was inspired by Brett Victor's, I think it's called Learnable Programming. He, he had a post sort of saying, how do we start to visualize um, how our program works in a more interactive way? And this Laszlo, who I work with, essentially figured out how to make that possible in home. And sort of the key design decisions of home actually make it really easy. So you're able to sort of have a slider and just go back through all the events that have occurred and sort of see what has happened. Um, you can even go back and like start there and change the path that you want to take. So one of the things we'd like to start doing with this summer is start using this as a QA tool. So if you have someone who's going to poke around through your application and they are able to find some bug, we want to add to this a little button that says like export bug report, where the developer gets the exact sequence of events that led to the bug and knows the particular code. And one cool thing is that you're able to change the code and see how things would go if that had happened. So you have this reproduced bug, this sequence of events, and the programmer can tweak things and see if the bug still manifests. So one place where we've seen people using this, there's a university in Leuven in Belgium where they did a little two- or three-week module in Elm. And essentially they did some instruction and as the like final results of this module, they, they asked all the students to make asteroids. And they sort of went into it not necessarily expecting that people would be able to do it, it uh, given that they'd only seen Elm for like two weeks. And they found that like a ton of people were able to make a nice asteroids game. And one of the things that was a helpful tool for them was this time-traveling debugger where in a game like Asteroids, if you get the negatives wrong, it's really easy to like the collisions don't work right or like if you shoot a bullet, it goes in the wrong direction. You can start to debug these things in a really nice way where you can change your code and see that the game that you just played works out as you expected. I'm really excited about that QA export button. So I, I really hope that, that they, they're able to pull this off over the summer because basically that would change my flow from, you know, we, we push our code to a staging server, our QA guy takes a look at it, and then says, hey, I like currently the status quo is literally like ideally he takes a screen cap of it after he does it again. But in some cases, it's just harder to reproduce. He's like, yeah, I saw this, but I, I can't I don't know what I did to trigger it. I have to, you know, just watch out for that. And hopefully it comes up again. 
But instead, if he's just, you know, he just starts up the debugger when he, you know, before he starts his QA session. And then once he sees something, he just hits pause, he hits export, he just sends me that file. And now I can bring it up locally, reproduce exactly, you know, what he saw. And not only that, but once I change my code, replay it again with my new code and confirm that it's no longer reproducible. That just sounds like such a ridiculous improvement over what my life is like right now with QA process that it's, I mean, it's comical. It's just just a joke. I mean, who doesn't want that? And I think part of the philosophy of Elm is, is like, the functional programming is cool, but like what's really interesting to me is using lessons from that sort of body of work to do really practical things like this, where it's just like, how can we make a developer's day-to-day life better? Yeah, that's that's one of the most interesting things that I've found about Elm compared to other functional languages that I've used is that in a lot of cases there other languages that I've kind of, you know, dabbled in are very academic and they're very about doing mathy stuff and kind of like abstractly cool things that are look cool in papers whereas Elm <laughs> is just is just very focused on like how can we make the developer experience really good. I mean, like literally to the point where Right now, like the next release is going to be like making the compiler error messages really nice. Like they're just formatting, right? Like (laughs) exactly. Like this is something that it's you know if you're in academia, it's not exciting. Like who cares? It's like oh well, technically it told you what the problem is. You know. Yeah, but to me it's it's so exciting. But you know, but you you'll never figure out what it means. But it, it told you so deal with it but elms like you know the the philosophy is more like no no let's let's make this nice let's like it, it'll I, i've been building off of the the bleeding edge version of the compiler just because these are so much nicer um and i i, I don't want to wait you know for the release but it's just like you'll get a message and it says like okay so here's what the problem was it actually has like little contextualized snippets of your code like with line numbers and it's got like a little like ASCII squiggle under the part that's you know problematic and it's like you know explains in plain English what went wrong and then it'll even make suggestions below that like maybe you meant one of these things and in a lot of cases especially when you just had a typo you know these things like really add up it's just a significant time savings to especially coming from JavaScript where my status quo experience is I do something wrong I bring it up in the browser, and then it says undefined is not a function in the console. Yeah, right? that's always helpful, isn't that's, it? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm used to. But in Elm, you know, instead what happens is I save my code, I go to the compiler, and the compiler is super fast. So it just, you know, I recompile it, and then less than a second, it's like, okay, on this line right here, you did this wrong. You were supposed to be passing in a, a list of strings, but you accidentally passed one string. And that was going to blow up, you know, a lot later, but instead I'm like, oh, cool, thank you. And then I just fix it and move on. And it's just so much nicer. I really can't <laughs> do it justice with words. It's just, yeah, I, I definitely recommend everyone try it. Awesome. That's fantastic. When is the next release? Ideally in the next like two weeks, I'm not going to make a, a promise here. I'm doing my best. <laughs> You're going to make Jessica wait. That's not fair. Oh, no, no. I'll just, I'll just do what Richard's doing and, um, and build, build it from source yeah. if I have to. Uh, that's, that's fantastic because that's the killer problem with Haskell, right? Yeah. People are like, the amazing thing about Haskell is if my co- program compiles, 95% chance it's right. But good freaking luck getting it to compile. Right, yeah. So, and, and this is something where like, I think from a learning perspective, one of the things I think about the most is like, what does it look like when you come to Elm and like you want to get productive in a week? And something that I think a lot of languages in this family have failed to do is really make that a welcoming experience. So the interactions with the compiler feel like there's this gatekeeper who, and they're just like, no, 
no, no, no. And then eventually they're like, <laughs> and like once they're happy, you're like, okay, like it, it was good advice. But I want that to feel more like a, you're getting help, like you're dealing with a, like a refactoring tool or a your pair programming with this robot that just knows that if you do it this way, your program's going to go wrong. So, like, in the ideal version of this, I want to feel like you're pair programming with, like, some, like, the best computer scientist of the last, like, 40 years who's just there and is like, hey, are you sure about this? And I think if we can get that experience really great, it'll be a, a really big deal. And that's why I'm, like, making this a priority. It's like, just little changes really can make a huge difference on how it feels to work in this environment. Um, and so, yeah, so Richard well, started to... Also, Elm's just, you know, you mentioned Haskell. Like, Elm is just so much simpler than Haskell. Like, I never totally finished learning Haskell because there's all these, like, complicated <laughs> words and, like, monads and stuff that I, like, don't totally understand. And I mean, I'm five years in and I'm still not done learning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Elm, you just, like, you could just pick up, like, really quickly. There's just not that, like, it doesn't have those, like, really complicated things that Haskell does. It's just, there's just not nearly as much to learn. It's a lot more, like, intentionally minimalistic. It sort of subscribes, as, as far as I can tell, more to the philosophy of, you know, perfection is when there's nothing left to take away, rather than, you know, when there's no more features you could possibly want to cram in there. <laughs> um, and I definitely appreciate that, both as a learner and as a user, just because uh, it's just, you know, less stuff to deal with, but it's still got all these really nice properties, you know, that I love. So, so I wanna... it sounds like you're trying to make it accessible to to people who aren't necessarily already familiar with the whole ML uh, family of languages. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's like number one priority. Well, is... it succeeded because I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I remember when I got into Haskell and it, and it seemed like all the tutorials were, were like, well, you know how this, you already know how this works from ML. The way it's right. different in Haskell is. <laughs> right, yeah. And so so I sort of see it as like, my target audience, like, it's not hard to convince someone who knows an ML language that Elm is an interesting thing. It's like, hey, do you know that thing you know? It's similar to that. Like, that I don't see as the hard problem. So to me, it's, we have these useful, like, engineering practices, useful engineering tools, and somehow we've been unable to, like, make that accessible to everyone. And I think that's the thing that's the most interesting, and that's sort of what I'm trying to do with Elm on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, how can I make it that much easier to learn, that much easier to get started, that much easier to start seeing these benefits that Richard's seeing as as someone who's sort of put in the week to sort of get familiar with? I oh, know. I think it was less than a week to get, to, <laughs> to get up and running, yeah. I mean, I now spend a lot more time programming it just because I like it. <laughs> but I want to kind of take this in a little bit different direction. We've talked a lot about kind of how it works and how to think about the problems in Elm. I'm curious, what, what kinds of things are people actually building in Elm? Are, are there kind of common examples or a go-to app that people should try to build in Elm? So there are a couple sort of getting started resources that I've made that are, the there's a thing called Elm Architecture Tutorial, which sort of, that'll keep you primarily in this functional core, writing code that has these really nice testing properties and modularity properties that are kind of shocking. Like once you sort of, realize this pattern, you're like, holy crap, like I can just keep doing this and, and my application will sort of have these nice properties. So that architecture tutorial is good. There's a little to do MVC. That's sort of the go-to like, hey, we can make a website with this example. And then we're, we have a couple sort of some commercial users and some sort of mid-sized applications out there. So Richard can probably say more about that. 
so there are there are a number of uh, examples on the website uh, elm-lang.org that you know showcase various open source things. So I mean, uh, I guess Dreamwriter, the the thing that I made is probably the biggest like open source uh, HTML based app. So there's a lot of a lot of people use Elm for uh, its graphics libraries and just drawing on canvas. So like 2D and 3D games and stuff like that, because it's it's good for both. I mean, it's good for, you know, just normal web application development. And also it's good for games. So I would say that I think uh, Dreamwriter is probably the biggest application, like open source yeah. application code base. There's one out there for like a note application where you can sort of make notes and subnotes mm. that I recently saw. So we're cool. starting to see more and more sort of traditional web apps. But you do get this mix of some people are interested in making games and some people are interested in making web apps. And you'll see examples of both. And like they're getting more and more fancy. What's pretty cool is is how how similar the code bases are for those. You know, I mean, in, in a lot of cases, it's just you got your model, you've got your view functions, and then you know you've got your business logic or your game logic, as the case may be. And those parts all look pretty similar. And then where they diverge is sort of like right at the boundary, where instead of saying, "Okay, we're going to update the DOM," you know, based on reacting to user inputs, instead you're saying, "Oh, we're going to update the canvas based on reacting to user inputs." Yeah, so it's it's interesting how much you can separate out sort of how to render the stuff from the core logic. So yeah. we have a couple rendering backends where you can use WebGL or you can use Canvas or you can use HTML or SVG or whatever. And sort of you could make a, a, a rendering backend for your application in any of those without really changing the core logic of your thing. It's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the other question I have, and this is more along the lines of, so this is a Ruby podcast and we're talking about Elm and we're talking about functional reactive programming, which isn't something we see a lot of in Ruby. Is there a reason why Ruby developers should care about Elm or should go try Elm other than just seeing a different way of doing things? Well, certainly Ruby developers who also find themselves having to do JavaScript stuff, which I would imagine is quite a lot of them, um, (laughs) would benefit from, you know, replacing a lot of their JavaScript code with Elm code if they uh, decide to get on board that train, which I highly recommend. It's a great train. (laughs) But also, um, so this is something that's sort of only minimally explored right now is that you can actually use this same stuff to write server-side logic and uh, and get all these same benefits, you know, no runtime exceptions, great refactoring, etc. So actually, that's how Elm HTML works. Someone wrote some bindings to Node for Elm, and Elm test is actually bootstrapped off of that. So it uses, it's actually Elm test itself, uh, the logic for the test runner is written in Elm, and then there's a very small little kernel that just sort of compiles that, runs it on Node, and then uses Node to do the, you know, the, the command line stuff. So in theory, someone could use that to, you know, build a whole bunch of business application in Elm. I think the main challenge right now would be that because that's not sort of, you know, a first class like intended use case as the UI stuff is, you don't have any like libraries built around that. You don't have database access library. You don't have, you know, just nobody's written any of those because that's not what people are focused on right now. Yeah. So to zoom out, like there's a, we'll we'll potentially be doing some server side stuff down the line, but we really want to focus on getting our niche like right on the web. So doing front end stuff really well. And from a back end perspective, I'd say there's still a lot of like, there's something about the sort of core set of features in Elm that teaches you stuff, even if you understand the core features. So this is something I found as I've worked with Elm is like, I found out, oh, if I like, if I structure my application this way, like it goes better for me. Yeah. Um, and what's crazy is like, I also made it 
like I'm there's this weird feedback <laughs> loop where like this thing that I designed is also teaching me these more architecture patterns or these kinds of software engineering best practices that weren't immediately apparent from the core principles. And so I'd say no matter what sort of your core day-to-day stuff is, that stuff is useful. And I find myself when I write JavaScript or Java or or whatever it is, there are these little patterns that I pick up that I find really useful. So I'd, I'd say just from that perspective, it's, it's an interesting thing to look into. One of the other things worth noting about it is that the way that Elm does interoperations with other languages, or, or I guess with JavaScript really, is really cool and really flexible. And it does so without breaking any of Elm's invariants, basically by sort of treating JavaScript with like a, a client-server slash type interaction where you sort of talk to JavaScript by sending data back and forth. Um, rather than sharing code like a lot of other compiled to JavaScript languages do. Yeah. So Richard said this, that he was like, oh, it's kind of like JavaScript as a service, which I really like. You know? <laughs> yeah. When you want to get into that, like you go and you can go crazy. And, and that's exactly how we've, we've integrated Element at work is that, you know, obviously it's, it's a, a new language. It's like, you know, you don't want to just sort of like dive in, especially because we're using it on literally the most mission critical part of our code base because we want these really nice invariants, but that's not something you do lightly. So we just basically took one little flux store and said, okay, we're going to rewrite, well, I say little, but it's like a couple hundred lines of code and really complicated. And we're just, I'm like, okay, we're just going to rewrite this one thing in L and just plug it into the rest of our JavaScript and it just, you know, just works out fine. And I would imagine that if, you know, getting back to your question of, you know, why would the Ruby crowd, you know, be interested in this, I think that's something that people could look into is just if you wanted to put something on the server that was just integrating with Node and then Node was, you know, talking to Ruby or whatever the case may be, then uh, you could just write one section of business logic, something that's particularly complicated, something where you particularly care a lot about refactoring and about avoiding runtime exceptions, things like that. It's really easy to just slice off, you know, one little chunk of code and rewrite it in Elm without having to rewrite your whole application in it. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Avdi, do you want to start us with picks? Yeah, I can do that. I think uh, today I'm just going to pick a uh, book series. I uh, recently got into a series called The Expanse by James S.A. Corey, which I believe is actually a pen name of two authors collaborating. But uh, it's a series of so far like five books and sci-fi. I think I already said that. Anyway, it's good space opera. I'm enjoying it. That's it for me. All right, Jessica, what are your picks? Uh, First of all, if there's anything technical... I'm going to pick Git LFS. If you haven't heard that Git made this extension for large files, uh, because Git is like totally not suited to putting like pictures or video or anything big that frequently changes binaries. That's another thing. I've always told people don't put those in Git because they will bloat your repository and you'll have to download every version of them that you have ever committed anytime you clone the repo. Well, they made, they made a solution to that that is really cool because it only gives you the version that you need at the time that you need it. So like when you clone the repo, you'll only get the latest version of pictures and media and other things. But then if you check out a previous commit, it'll go fetch the versions that you need. So everything's in there. The history is recorded, but you don't bloat your repository on your local device. So that's really cool. Something get totally needed. For, for another pick, I want to pick a book. It's a fiction book. It's called The City and the City. So The City and the City is amazing. It's about two cities that overlap geographically. 
like interspersed are on the same land from block to block. You may be in one city or the other. And all the people in the city are raised from childhood to choose not to see the other city. So you're only in one or the other at a given time. And everyone just chooses not to see anything that isn't in their city. It's really bizarre. It's kind of like taking the, the human mental capacity to choose what to see and what not to an extreme. Uh, but it's a beautiful description, beautiful setting, great book. And it totally applies to like the real world because I can see now how I do that in real life when I'm ignoring some of what's going on around me because it's not what I'm comfortable with. Interesting. Very cool. Coraline, do you have some picks for us? I have a pick today. It's a, a little application called Patterns, which is uh, from macOS. It's on the App Store. It's basically a tool for working with regular expressions. So you write out your expression, and you see your matches and replacements in real time while you edit your pattern. It does regex syntax coloring, and there's a built-in reference sheet, so you can find all of the arcane regex syntax that you maybe have forgotten about. Um, and you can copy um, match and replacement codes out of the patterns application right into your source code. So um, it's a neat little app. And if you do a lot of work with regular expressions, it's kind of nice to have an interactive editor that shows you exactly what's going to happen when your regex is run with different inputs. So available again on the App Store. And we'll put a link in the show notes. All right. I've got a couple of picks, but mostly they have to do with lifestyle as opposed to you know, books or anything else. I'm going to throw a quick reminder in to go check out rubyremoteconf.com and then I'm going to talk about these other couple of things. And mainly there are... So I, I went down to uh, do some training uh, last week in Atlanta for a company out there. And one of the things that was really nice was just to get a change of pace. And so I'm going to encourage you especially if you're feeling burned out or worn out or anything like that, to just find a change of pace, just find something different to do for a week or so. It just really helped me out. I was a little bit burned out. I'm still not completely past the burnout, but you know, I'm feeling pretty good about things for the most part, and I think I can cope until I actually have a free week in a few weeks. So that's one thing I want to throw out there. The other one is, and this is something that's coming up more and more as uh, at least in the United States, we're getting closer and closer to, you know, we have more people coming into the presidential race. Uh, we'll vote next year on, on that. But a lot of people seem to really just be up in arms about stuff. And a lot of it's important conversations we need to have. But what I want to encourage people to do is go talk to people who have the opposite viewpoint that you have and just figure out what you have in common. And then from there, you can kind of figure out the details of why you believe a specific thing or why you support a particular viewpoint and things like that. I mean, I've had conversations with several people over the last few months um, who don't share my viewpoint politically, religiously, whatever, you know, code, uh, etc. And just just talking about it, you know, I, f I found that some things, you know, I really do have in my opinion, good reasons for believing what I believe. In other areas, I feel like I don't really have all of the answers or good answers. And so it really helped me evaluate where I'm at. And uh, I think this is a healthy thing for people to do. Avdi put, just don't do it on Twitter. Yeah, you can't have a nuanced conversation about this on Twitter. But just go to lunch with somebody or, you know, have a Google Hangout or something is what I guess I'm, I'm advocating here. So anyway, those are my picks. Richard, what are your picks? I'm just going to pick one. 
This is a talk that I gave uh, that basically it's, it's kind of personal for me because uh, it's it's a combination of how I sort of ended up at Elm and sort of an introduction to Elm. So I think anyone trying to get into Elm, it, it would be useful, hopefully entertaining, and uh, at least for me personally, um, interesting from a you know, sort of background level. All right. Evan, what are your picks? Okay, so I have... I have two. One is the Elm architecture tutorial, which is a really, I, I think it's like the right way to get into Elm and sort of see what the core idea is. And the other one is a podcast called Econ Talk that I'm a huge fan of. So I really like studying economics and it's a nice way to sort of uh, talk with leaders in economics or in finance or from a, the host is an academic guy. So he always has these really insightful questions and is sort of able to put his personal beliefs aside and just ask the hardest question to the the person he's talking to. So you learn like really weird stuff, like the economics of like milk placement in a grocery store, <laughs> which I find shockingly interesting. <laughs> huh. All right. Well, thanks for coming. If people want to follow up with you guys or get more information about Elm, what are the best ways to do that? So I am on Twitter at Chaplitz. It's hard to just. It's hard to spell. I'll, uh, I'll I'll give you guys the link to it, and also the mailing list, which is called Elm Discuss, is a really uh, nice community who's happy to help out with any questions you happen to have. Um, and we we tend to get pe- back to people pretty quick and like be really helpful with with beginner type questions. And I'm R T Feldman on Twitter. That's R T F E L D M A N. By the way, uh, No Red Ink is hiring, and. Uh, <laughs> anyone out there is interested in the kind of stuff we do we're a Rails shop so uh, even if you have no interest in Elm whatsoever if you're awesome at Rails and are interested in education you should hit me up on Twitter alright well thank you for coming thanks for listening we'll catch you all next week once again this episode was sponsored by Braintree so go check them out at Braintree.com if you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general they are a great way to go and we appreciate them sponsoring the show this episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash apartment.